Welcome back to Decades on Dirt Roads. This is Maddie. This is Catherine. And we are so excited to have Bill Mitchell on the show. Uh, he's a recent Forest Service retiree, only a temporary employee his whole 43-year career. Um, so one huge congrats and kudos to a career of that length. That's no small feat, um, especially this being uh, his secondary career because um, he was also a teacher and we're going to get into that. But um, he's He's incomparable. He's one of a kind in the impact that he had on the Willow Whitman National Forest, um, not only in the fire program, but in the civil culture program uh, is is pretty monumental. And um, he's, yeah, he's a legend of a man. And we're, we're really excited to just seek some advice and sharing good conversations with a dear mentor. Yeah, we um, recently went to his retirement party and it was an inspiration, honestly, like to be so loved by that many people and have so many people like share and special stories with Bill. And that is like, it almost makes me emotional because that's like the legacy that you, everyone should want to le- leave, totally. you know, at their career and even a secondary career. Like he was just so dialed and so yeah, like there's no words for it. And we're, we're getting all this nice stuff out at the beginning because Bill is very humble and yeah, um, just a hard worker. And he, he probably doesn't see the impact necessarily that he's made on everyone, like inspirational to all father figure to many, like, it's just, it's just Bill Mitchell. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about in our intro podcast of talking about, you know, why we're doing this and, you know, Catherine and I are big community people and, and Bill is, is community through and through. And I think one of my favorite parts of the retirement party, uh, last weekend was, um, I don't remember what individual, but you know, he's, he's a big one word guy to sum up people and and respect was the word to define Bill. And I, I mean, there's no, there's no better word, but a man of respect and integrity and influence. And he, uh, I mean, if you look at any, any current leadership, um, you know, throughout the forest and even adjacent agencies, it's pretty cool to know that, that Bill Mitchell had some type of say in uh, their upbringing as a, as a young man or as a young woman, as a young leader, uh, he's, he's one of a kind and in so many ways. So we're excited to celebrate that and, um, yeah, just, just shoot the shit with a cool dude. Yeah. And you grew up with Bill, you know, kind of your dad was friends with him and mm-hmm. worked with him and respects him greatly. And I got to work with him for a few years when I was with the forest service. So yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're going. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, hi, Bill. Hi, ladies. <laughs> um, can you give a little introduction of yourself? We've already given you one, but we want to give you a chance to speak for yourself. So do I start it with OK Boomer? <laughs> no. No? <laughs> no, this no. is a safe space. OK, safe space. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, what I guess you're looking for is a real snapshot of my career. So I started in Wildland Fire in California in 1975, and in 1979, as I was uh, <clears throat> looking to branch out elsewhere, one of the guys came to me and said, you know, they're going to pass a tax initiative here in California and they're not going to be a job for you. So I happened to be going to a small state college in Oregon to play football. And it turns out that there was a poster in uh, one of the lobbies that said new hotshot crew being formed out at the uh, air tanker base. Hello. So I walked out there and, met my future soup and well 43 years later i was still employed by the forest service and just till this last month wow so you started on a hotshot crew 
With the Forest Service, yeah. I was on an engine uh, with what's now called Cal Fire. It wasn't mm. called Cal Fire back in the late 70s. What was it called? Well, it, uh, it actually morphed during the time I was there. It was the California Division of Forestry in 1975. And then about 77 or 78, they renamed it. They were reor reorganizing their forestry department, so it became the Department of Forestry. And that didn't last long. And then shortly into the 80s, I think they developed CAL FIRE. I don't know exactly when that was, but gotcha. I wasn't a part of that because... In 1980, I was on the brand new Union Hotshot group. I see. I love that everyone likes to skip over your Cal Fire days, but you have some really good stories from those. I do. Yeah. <laughs> my, my first fire uh, with Cal Fire was a dumpster. No. My second <laughs> a literal fire, dumpster fire. A literal <laughs> dumpster fire. Fitting. So, yeah, we responded to dumpsters. And back in the day when people liked to burn their, you know, their municipal garbage dumps, and we went to those. And then the second fire was 80,000 acres of brush. We got burned over not once, but twice. Oh, like deployment burned? Well, well, did they have those? Yeah, <laughs> back in the day, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't a deployment in the modern sense of a deployment. It was uh, two engines and an inmate crew at the bottom of a canyon. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> one way in, one way out, uh, doing a structure defense. And that fire came down the hill and Yours truly got picked to be on the nozzle. And the captain said, just open up the wide fog and keep it in front of the house. So, so it was still protect the house. It was still protect the house Oof. at pretty much, you know, huge risk. It's not anything any agency on the planet would do today. Uh, they would take one look at that situation and go, no go. house. <laughs> <laughs> that was a stupid place but, to uh, build a house. Remember, you know, as I had... Um, you know, the big fog, these engines, these are type three or four engines. I mean, they've got a lot of water in them. We could, we could do that. And uh, I remember looking around at the inmate crew guys who were running around uh, trying to put line around spot fires as this thing developed over us. Oh, that's going to be beneficial. And then, yeah, well, oh. uh, it worked. Uh, we, you know, there was no loss of structure. Oh, wow. There. Um, everything was, we drove out of there with empty tanks and a, a wide-eyed inmate crew. <laughs> oh Welcome. In, in those days, there was no uh, personal, you had no personal. Uh, PPE. That's right. Well, you had it, but you, you didn't have the modern, there was no deployment shelter. Were uh, you wearing jeans? No, I was not wearing jeans. Good. I was in a Nomex jumpsuit, <laughs> which is what they used. Oh, wow. it's got to be so hot. It was so hot because <laughs> it went over your jeans. <laughs> so you have oh. two layers. So this was this was uh, pretty eye-opening for a, a young lad. And then on that same fire, we got down a road and the fire turned. And the captain decided he was going to drive out because there really wasn't any other choice. And in those days, the crew rode in the back. It was an open engine. The crew was in the back. You had a roll bar over you, and you had seats, and you buckled in. Like an arm, like an ex-army, like correct. Yep. And it's, it's uh, whoa. You know, you want to Google what a, a California Division of Forestry Model One engine looked like back in the day. There you go. Um, so that fire went over the top of us, and we drove out, and we were kind of cowering in the back. <laughs> we got warm. <laughs> 
you know, a little, little hot, later, little a little hot, little hot. You know, by the time I left, they were developing. They still had, well, they were moving away from the crew exposed in the engine to a crew cab. You know what we see today. Yeah. But the in the interim, what they did is they developed a shelter that the crew could reach and just pull over them like that in the back of the truck. Like a turtle. Like a you just yeah you it rolled out on and you you know you pulled it over the top. In the event that you guys were driving through fire. Again. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So it wasn't like don't don't limit your exposure. It was like, well, we're gonna we're gonna this have is gonna this, happen. Yeah. We are going to expose you. Yeah. Be, be ready. <laughs> be prepared. And it wasn't just anymore where you're sitting in the back with your hard hat and goggles on going, okay, this fire's going over the top of us. You actually had I never had one, but I saw them later on. Huh. Where you could unroll it, grab it and unroll it, just pull it over the top and there was as many as four crew members in the back of these rigs. There'd wow. Be, there'd be the engineer, the captain who was operating the engine, there'd be one person in the cab, and then the rest of the crew, whether you had one or, you know, four more, would ride in the back. Wow. So, Dang. And then yeah. from that, you went and to... Then, that was during the Jurassic. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, okay, okay, hold on. So you were like 18, 19? Yeah, I was just 18. 18. Mm -hmm. This happens. And you're yeah. like, you know what? I still like this. Actually, it, uh, <laughs> it really, you know, I was going, this is pretty cool. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, um, I actually went right straight into a fire science program at Butte Community College, which is outside of Chico. Oh. And that was my, that was my study. I was headed for, uh, I had entertained the notion of going to Humboldt State after doing a a couple of years. Part of this was driven by wanting to play college football and the notion that I really actually wanted to be on the field mm -hmm. rather than just wear somebody's uniform and yep. wave at the crowd. Yep. I wanted to be on the field playing the game. And so junior college, check. Yep. I could play. And then uh, I was looking at the end of my junior college career, play some more. And I had some offers from places where I could wear the uniform and wave at the crowd. Yeah. Uh, but then I got a letter from a small college in Eastern Oregon, and the first line kind of captured my attention. Do you want to hunt deer and elk 10 minutes out of town? Hello. <laughs> Hello. Sign me up. So a friend and I came up uh, in February of 1977, drove his Ford Pinto. You'll have to look that one up too, girls. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You could say that now yeah. and be like, a Ford, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I would not know what it is. Yeah. So that, that means nothing to me. Yeah. So we drove up and I uh, I took a shine to the place. My friend actually went to Western Montana um, and played there. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what we did. Dang. Yeah. Were you guys good then? What's that? Were you good in the 70s? Good, meaning in what sense? Competitive. Was the team oh, good? The team was very competitive. Huh. Yeah, we uh, we just missed going to a bowl game Whoa. in in our in our you know it was was in, it the NAIA it still? Was. Okay. It was NAIA back in the day. We uh, we yeah we were very competitive. Um, we went to California and played uh, St. Mary's in the Bay Area, beat them seven to six. That was the last game Ooh, of your we, career. Of my career. Wow, yep. that's a high and. and and they said if we'd have scored more points in the game, we would be in contention for some game like in West Virginia or 
Um, you know, something like that. The next wow. series of bowl games right. to continue on. Imagine if you played the Mountaineers in, in Virginia, which yeah, is also the Mountaineers. Yeah, that's two, <laughs> that's two different classes. Yeah. Of, you know, <laughs> the Mountaineers of Eastern Oregon wouldn't fare very well against the Mountaineers of West Virginia. Fair enough. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were very competitive. What position did you play? Uh, I played offensive line. I was the smallest one. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, I did have to help the guy next to me with the blocking. You know, I'd mumble or yeah. point or something like that. He wasn't the sharpest mm. tool in the shed. So, mm. Look at you. So, coaching yeah, from so the I beginning. Was, I was on the line coaching mm. you know, to help these guys do their blocking assignments. So. Good segue. So um, you obviously worked for the Forest Service for a long time, worked outdoors, but can you touch on your coaching experience? Well, I uh, went to an interview in Baker and the whole premise of starting my teaching career, um, which my wife was probably somewhat responsible for, but I really enjoyed it. And it seems the feedback says I was relatively good at it. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> I wanted to coach. I wanted to coach football. And uh, I went to an interview at a middle school in Baker. And the principal was an ex-hotshot. Hello. So that was back in the day when you didn't have the exact same set of questions for everybody and the same interview panel. It was How refreshing. It was walk in, get a feel for the candidate, get a feel for the building. You know, before I walked out, he took me up to a room upstairs and he said, you'll notice the wood, these are wood floors. They'll be good on your legs for a long career. Hmm. And I'm going, does that mean I... Got it. Got the job. <laughs> yeah. I don't even think I'd gotten back to LeGrand before I got a call. Or there obviously no cell phones in those days, but I got a call fairly quickly. Wanna wanna hire you as a football coach at the middle school and uh, teach social studies. And so in 1982, I started that and shifted from the hotshot crew to uh, the fire zone in LeGrand or in uh, Baker and. Went from there. My first first year with uh, the Burt Powder Fire Zone, I had 20 high school kids on a crew. 20. 20. We had a 20-person crew, and we did just about everything, including fighting fire in jeans. So wow. We, uh, we, we mostly did uh, brushing, road brushing. Uh, we did hand piling. We did lots of stuff. But, uh, yeah. These kids were still in high school. They were 16, 17, and, and some of them were 18. And uh, they, had, they didn't go to fire school. They weren't, they weren't trained as firefighters. Um, there was one time we went to a, and did some line building on a global scape for prescribed fire at Phillips Lake. So wow. um, that's not, again, something you would never see done today. Not even close. Yeah. The liability would be through the roof. Yeah, so, there's a lot of lawyers. They enjoyed it. They, some of those kids, some of those kids went on to fire careers um, in various places. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. So you talk about going from what's now Cal Fire to the Hotshot Crew, then you got a teaching job. So can you give us like a a look at what your year was like? Because you would teach in the fall and in the spring, and then you would just go directly into leading a crew? Yeah, it was uh, a situation where I would just 
you know, we'd end school on a Thursday or a Friday, and the following Monday, I'd be uh, across town at the fire zone, getting ready to do whatever uh, they wanted done. I only had the 20-person crew, I think, maybe one or two years. And then after that, I sort of became a free agent. Hmm. I did things for people that uh, <laughs> they want agent. they wanted done. That sounds so, so sketchy, Bill. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of fun because it wasn't, it was, there was no routine. And it was, you know, I spent nine months out of the year creating and teaching a routine hmm. or coaching it. And I'd get to work and there'd be, uh, okay, we're going to go do this today or that or something else. Or you're going to work with these guys. or you know. And so I got to look at a broad range of functions of the Forest Service. I was primarily fire, and, and, but I got to look at all kinds of different things. We did all manner of stuff. Uh, we built fence. We, you know, and then I, there were various personalities that you know, I came in contact with in the different branches and that was kind of neat too so yeah that's a good way to put that i hadn't even really thought about how yeah you go from building a routine all year long for other people and following that to a t to you as yourself just wanting to do i think that's that's something that's super attractive to me that keeps bringing me back is for so long during college um everything's written out for you like when you're waking up when you're working out when you're eating when you're going to class when you're practicing um, and then going into fire, there's something new every day, but there still is, okay, this is when you need to show up. This is what you wear. This is what time yeah, we're right, eating. Right, right, <laughs> so, Yeah. In some ways it's, it's more regimented than, you know, my other occupation of teaching and coaching. And in some ways, as I mentioned, it isn't, you know, I always thought I had really the best situation going because I could work with young people indoors and creating the routine within the framework of the curriculum and, you know, the school um, for nine months. And at the end of that nine months, it was like me getting out of school. Yeah. Because School's out. Exactly. And now it's three months of vacation. Playing in the dirt. Paid, yes. playing in the dirt, being in the woods. And more and more through that period of time, I became more of a solo uh, entity. I, I worked... Uh, alone, unless we were planting trees or, you know, doing stuff like that. We'd go thinning, but, and you don't do those activities alone, obviously. But, uh, yeah. you know, for the layout and the recon and, you know, those kinds of things, that was just totally, you know, me and the pickup. Yeah. And it was pretty attractive to do those kinds of things. And then it would come to an abrupt end, you know, mid-August, uh, football, got to go, guys. And, you know, several times where there were actual fires going on and I was in Nomex and dirty one day and the next day it's in a pair of PE shorts with a whistle starting running some guys through drills. So it was that fast of a transition sometimes. Year after year after year. So can you talk a little bit or speak to that transition between, can you talk about leading fire crews and I know that you, you kept your foot in fire and for those that maybe don't know, um, that's kind of the beauty of working on a district is you can still keep your fire calls, but work for a different department, correct? Yeah, you could. Um, and you can still do it. I mean, you can be in civil culture or recreation. And as long as you keep your credentials up um, and take the right coursework or, or, and work towards maybe in getting a, you know, a better certification, whatever you want, you can do that and still work 
in a non-fire job. I think those that envelope may be tightening and closing. It's not nearly what it used to be. It used to be that the Forest Service could field uh, 20-person crews right and left all on all on their own with their own manpower. Um, back in the day when I took would take crews off forest, we'd have, uh, you know, they would give each crew a number in terms of which number this was off forest, and it wasn't unusual. Okay, you're going to take Wallow Whitman crew nine oh. because it doesn't mean that they were all out at the same time. It just means they did their rotation, yeah. came back, and then, okay, we're going to field the next crew. And back in those days, there was no two to one and there was no 14 day <laughs> commitment. It was. You didn't know it, when you were coming home. It was, uh, well, and when I was a hotshot, 38 days was the record for Hello. Was, time that, out. was that for you guys? Yeah. 38 days. Right. We were out for 38 days. Was that in Alaska? No, it wasn't oh, in Alaska. It was, it was a combination of New Mexico, Colorado, and Nevada, and then back home. So we, wow. we, we flew more in those days. Uh, we didn't, we hardly drove anywhere. Really? We, oh yeah. We had, we had as transportation, a crew cab pickup with a canopy and two eight, 10 passenger vans. And we, the limit of, of our, uh, you know, going, get <clears throat> headed out to fires with, by driving would be central Oregon or central um, Idaho. If we went any farther, it was waiting for the Convair 580, huh. which had a 44 passenger capacity and could carry two hotshot cruise equipment. And it would land at Legrand, and away we would go. Wow! We never drove to Wenatchee. We always flew. <laughs> we what? We drove. What? How many hours did you spend in Wenatchee this summer? <laughs> that yeah. is insane. We would fly. We flew to Klamath Falls. We flew to Twin Falls. All we do is drive. Yeah, and we didn't drive anywhere. <laughs> Maddie drive. is so jealous right there, now. <laughs> there would be transportation. It might be a school bus. There might be something. But we flew everywhere. But then what'd you do to get around, like, on the fires and stuff? And District go? would give them trucks, right? We walked. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uphill, uphill both ways. Uh, yeah, yeah, in the snow. <laughs> so, no, it, uh, yeah, the, we, there would be some form of transportation. Uh, sometimes it was military. Oh. And, you know, we'd go to, we went to Utah. We rode in the back of um Five ton trucks in the dust. Band of Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and so it was military transportation, or it was district transportation. Often it was uh, very, very rarely it was a rental. But so sometimes. you guys didn't have buggies or nope, no buggies, time. no buggies. That's wild to think yeah. about. Yeah. So just for clarification. Bill, there are two hotshot crews on the Malau Whitman. So there's Legrand and there's Union. And Maddie's on Legrand. Yes. And Bill was the beginning of Union. Right. So, so we're talking crew. about it. So Maddie yeah. is on the hotshot crew. That was Bill's rival. Yes. <laughs> That's right. He's the founding father. Still yeah. wears the green shirt. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So. I don't know how it hasn't fallen apart yet. Did you get yeah. a new one? Oh, yeah. The logo's it? changed. And yeah, <laughs> and the shirts have changed over time. You know, we didn't have that hawk's head you know logo what was it before it was a it was a fire triangle with 
on each triangle. on each side, union, interagency, hot shots, and, uh, and that was as good as it got. I mean, you'd have to go to the tanker base and look at the shirts up close. Oh yeah, yeah, they were gray with black piping, and they were. Yeah. Have you, I don't know. Have you been in the building since we moved into ours? No. You should go. The I should go. Done some. They've done some cool stuff with all the old crew photos. Good. They needed and, to. Uh, so yeah, yeah, they have the intro. Uh, each crew had their own like intro big uh, i don't know picture and, and kind of storyline mm -hmm. along the wall yeah uh but unions like, elaborated on theirs huh. i'd like to see that yeah well Sometime. while you're in the grand yeah. break into the base yeah break into the base. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um okay let's uh let's see what else we got here so you talked a little bit about teaching and, and how that was so attractive to go from from the routine of, of school and then to to the fire world, um, but you've, you've touched a little bit on civiculture. What is that? For those that don't know what civiculture looks like, what's a day in the life? Well, that's, you know, if you talk to various old growth foresters, um, they will tell you that that is the reason why the Forest Service was founded in the first place, that uh, the care of the national forests and the regeneration of those forests and in, in modern times, the thinning of those forests falls on the, the civiculture department, which is in basically the definition is the, the growing and care of trees. And that's the, that is the essence of what the Forest Service historically has been and is still today, although that's morphed into um, a fairly different picture of what it was and how things have been conducted over time, even in the career, the short career that I've had in civiculture. Um, so short career meaning meaning uh, 12 or 14 years of civiculture because I left fire uh, in about 2010 or 11 somewhere in there and oh, wow. went to civiculture I still kept my fire qualifications for the next three to five years after that but uh, I went and worked um, for the civiculturist and got into that program. What so, were your fire calls? Uh, I was a division supervisor, um, called at that level. Um, I wanted to do some things in aviation. I took uh, the air tanker uh, division air soup coursework, but I never did any of that work in practice. Um, I was on a hell attack crew back with in the California Department of Forestry days, so I had some some qualifi qualifications with respect to helicopters, but it never morphed into anything with the Forest Service. Um, the two were pretty far apart in how they did things and how they wanted things done, so I just left it alone. So, do you still have your pilot's license? I do. You do. You don't generally lose your pilot's license. What you lose is the is the legal ability to get <laughs> in the front of the aircraft. Uh, yeah, so in, in pilot in pilot lingo, I am not current, oh, okay. which would mean there would be a, a lot of stuff to do. Um, it's possible I could probably spend uh, 10 to 15 hours and then get my medical and all kinds of things. I could be, uh, be current again but i just have no desire to do it. it's expensive and so yeah so not your retirement plan 
Not my retirement plan. No, no. I enjoyed the pilot days when I was able to do that. I mean, when I was when I learned to fly, which and I was also in junior college. Uh, the airplane was eight dot. It was uh, $18 an hour, and the instructor was $9 an hour. A paid position? Wait. That's what you had to, that's what I paid the instructor and rented the aircraft for per hour. $18 for the aircraft, $9 for the instructor. Our jaws are on the floor right now. Yeah. I know you can't see this. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, that was the late 70s. So, there, so pretty so, much you're like, of course, yeah. why wouldn't I get my pilot's license? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, my father had an airplane. He had a pilot's license. And while I was there at uh, in Chico, they have a nice airport. And they actually had the same make and model of aircraft that my dad owned Whoa. that I had actually flown, you know, under the radar. <laughs> <laughs> It's not hard. I mean, you get the thing off the ground, it flies itself for the most part. But it's getting it back on getting the ground. Getting it back on the ground <laughs> is what you work for. Yeah, that requires some <laughs> so, skill. Let's yeah, it not does. Yeah, that. it does. So, uh, <laughs> so. Oh my God. Have you heard the, so like all these, there's this like trend online where girlfriends are also asked their boyfriends, you think in an emergency, could you land a plane? <laughs> <laughs> and it said, and yeah. every man says, yeah, of course oh, I can. I could do it. Yeah. I could do it. Yeah. The but, bigger, but, the, but Bill could the, actually do it. The, the, big, the bigger, the better. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. You've seen those, right? Yes, I have. Wow. But Bill is is the standard. He well, could actually do yeah, it. Yeah, you know, oh, I'd be sweating bullets if I, had, <laughs> if I faced that right now. I, oh, boy. Wow, what a simulation. Yeah. You did not think you were going to get asked that question I, when you signed up for yeah, this. Yeah, I didn't. I, I could think of a you know a dozen things right now that you should not do when yeah. you're trying to land an airplane. Yeah. Oh. This isn't the podcast for that, though. No, it's not. <laughs> Let's move away from this. <laughs> oh, man. That's so interesting, though. So your dad was a pilot, and you just kind of grew up with that then? Oh, yeah. We, we had an airplane until his partner flew it into the ground. And there it is. And there it is. The so, importance of. Yeah. It's like secondhand lions. Yeah. So. <laughs> that is like secondhand lions. What a good movie. Um, That's how my uncle lost his plane. No way. <laughs> my dad grew up with plane stories of his dad being a pilot and them like for family vacations. They yeah. would all get in the plane and they would fly down to a beach in Mexico because they were raised in Southern California. And they'd just fly to Mexico and that would be their weekend. Lane and Alec would... They would pay the boys in plane rides to be the little like, what is that called, Bill? Oh, the oh the air traffic. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the, the ground the ground maintenance and the ground the ground. Yeah, guys. at like less than ten. Yeah, just pay the kids oh. in plane rides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, interesting, huh? Yeah, I never grew up in a plane or having a means to a plane. Um, but, um, okay, you talked a little bit about you know, your different roles in fire and the different positions you had. Uh, can you go over some career highs, your choice of, you know, whether it be a division soup or being a crew lead or being single resource? You can break it into categories. Yeah, if you have. just uh, with the theme of, of decades on dirt roads, you've spent a lot of decades seeing some pretty cool spots um, on the west side of the country and then some. Yeah, that's a, there's a lot of, a lot of things like, you know, a lot of fires I can remember and a lot of moments. Um, one moment is a non-fire moment. Awesome. Uh, I was 
coaching. Uh, it was, I think, uh, 2006, if I remember the, the year correctly. Like an 06. And uh, both Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita had just battered the Gulf Coast. And, you know, I think your reader, your listeners will be able to maybe – look at that or if they are not familiar with those um they could google that uh, uh katrina in particular was just devastating to to louisiana in particular and uh fema organized and mobilized and quickly became overwhelmed with the sheer magnitude of the destruction and so uh the national incident command of the Forest Service and other agencies was also mobilized to support that, and they actually burned through uh, the manpower to be able to do that. Um, one day I got a call from uh, an incident commander that I had been uh, with a number of times on large fires, and he said, uh, what's the chances you can leave you're teaching for a month. He said, we are in critical need of folks uh, that are qualified up to the division level to do some real organization. Yeah. Uh, we are timed out here. And I went to the school administration and said what he asked me. I said, they're asking for help. This is a national emergency. And uh, the superintendent at the time said, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you go, but what I want you to do is, if you can, try to work your classes into this somehow. If you can do something where, you know, they can be involved as well, or the school at large. Mm. And I said, well, I'll do my best. So I took an AD spot. Um, on the team. On the, on, in essence, on the team, took an AD position, and they flew me to Alexandria, uh, Louisiana, and I meshed with the crew that was there and has developed uh, a guy from Western Oregon who worked for U.S. Fish and Wildlife and I uh, were tasked with going around to the disaster recovery centers in, in the entire state of Louisiana and in Mississippi and assess what those folks needed in terms of just infrastructure and care for the workers, not the displaced people in Louisiana mm. or those folks. Uh, what had happened was the country had sent every people, every, every person who volunteered in, in various federal agencies sent them to this and didn't really have the infrastructure to support these these remote posts and i say remote they were in small towns you know scattered across and big towns too i mean we spent time right down in new orleans um but we would go in and you could see that they were they had the food thing figured out for these you know these folks they, these were in you know vacant walmarts or stuff like that and there was uh, all kinds of um, entities in there uh to help the displaced folks with all kinds of things. Um, but the care for those folks was severely lacking. So we would go in to, the, to a community. We do all this like in one day. We mm -hmm. go into the community and we would basically be looking for housing because these people were living, you know, their, their bath was a, 
in the back of the Walmart was a, in a bat in a in a big sink, mm-hmm. and they'd been that way for weeks. Yeah, and they were sleeping on the floor in the Walmart. These are the folks tasked with helping the displaced, gotcha. and that was degraded to the point that they because they couldn't help themselves and so that was our job to leave from baton rouge at 2 30 or 3 in the morning and drive and hit as many of these places as we could in one day and it was satisfying because we would we would go i can't tell you the names of the places that we went um but we would go into the community and we would actively go to places we thought maybe we could find housing for these people. And I'll never forget, we're in this small town and we had stopped at the, uh, at the center. Uh, I don't remember what, what kind of facility was in. And we talked to the director of the facility and it was, it was pretty dire. Those folks were, you know, there were postal workers from Alaska and there were, there were people in there who weren't equipped physically, basically, with the things you would need for a long-term stay away or weren't mentally prepared for the kinds of things that are routinely asked of hotshot crew members. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're going two weeks. You're going to sleep on the ground. Get used to it. I mean, that's the, the hotshot crew members are going, yahoo, or yeah. that's what we do. These folks were not, you know, as tough as they were doing the job that they were trying to do simply didn't have that. It was, they were not prepared to do that. So we, my partner and I, would go to the motels and various places. And what we figured out was the very best place to get information about what was going on in town was the beauty shop. Hello. (laughs) This is my favorite part of the story. I love this story. So, So we would go to the beauty shops and these gals in the beauty shops would go, oh, yeah, you need to go over there. They've got two rooms over at this place. And those folks are just about to leave over there. And, you know, at the day's in, I think there's going to be some of and we would, And we would get all this intel. And wow. then we'd go confirm it. We'd go to these places these ladies had said. And, and we took this information back to this one particular director. And we said to her, uh, there's going to be four rooms of the days in for your folks. There's going to be two over here on this street at, at the B&B. There's going to be some over here. And this woman broke down and cried right in front of us. She said, you don't know what this is going to mean to the folks that are working here. And my partner and I did know yeah. what it meant. It was, and that was a, re- and a totally non-fire related, totally, you know, in the left field for me, basically in terms of, uh, my experience, but it was just an organizational thing, a piece that had been omitted, overlooked. I won't say neglected because it, it just happened. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't something, you know, people in Baton Rouge who were running the, uh, the main central office there were, it just happened. Yeah. And, and it was really cool to be able to go into Bogalusa and, <laughs> and, and no, it's so okay. good. We're so good. Um, and, uh, you know, and all the houses have uh, blue tarps on the roofs because yeah. they're torn off. And, or, you know, yeah. and so you go in there and you go, and these, these the trees, and even a month after the hurricane, it's just impassable on lots of streets. Um, it was nice to be able to 
give some support to those who are supporting the community and arrived with, you know, they were in their hearts, they wanted to do the right thing and it, it wore them down because yeah. they didn't have the infrastructure supporting them. So wow. it's pretty cool. Yeah. And the piece involving the kids, uh, I would communicate with my sub uh, via cell phone and I would talk to the kids on the speaker sometimes. And uh, we had all the lists and the addresses of all the uh, disaster recovery centers in Louisiana mm -hmm. and the ones we stopped at. And so uh, I was also the advisor for uh, student government. So I would, you know, I'd right there in class, I would talk to the president of the student body and all of that. And I said, hey, Peter, let's do this. Mm -hmm. um, let's start a drive there of, you know, just stuff, jerky and snacks and stuff like that. Well, those guys upped it. And those kids wrote letters of support for mm -hmm. these people. Oh, wow. They went around and got hundreds and hundreds of dollars, of all kinds of stuff from the grocery stores. They boxed all that stuff up and they sent that to those disaster recovery centers. And by the time I got back, we were getting letters from the folks at those disaster recovery centers again saying, wow, thanks for mm -hmm. the support. So the kids worked into that and that was pretty cool to have those kids do that kind of thing. And that, that was on them because I'm, yeah. I'm in Louisiana, yeah. you know, and I just said suggestion here yeah. and they took it and ran and it was pretty cool to see that. I never got to, I never went into a disaster recovery center where somebody said, are you from Baker, Oregon. Yeah. We got a big package of all oh kinds of cool God. stuff from Baker, Oregon. Which is amazing in itself because Baker is such a small community and it's not necessarily the wealthiest community either. People yeah. just gave the little that they had. They did. They did. And, you know, we, we actually spent school, you know, kids spent their own account money that they had in their school account for some of this stuff. And some of it was donated or matched. Or, and uh, I would say, hundreds of pounds of stuff left Baker for various places in Louisiana in 2006. Wow. I have like chills. <laughs> so I, yeah, I still love this story. Yeah, maybe, it was, maybe it was 2005. I'd, I'd have to look when, but it was, I think the hurricanes arrived one after the other in August and then one early, and then Rita in early September. And then I think it was 2005, but we could check. Yeah. Or your listeners could check. <laughs> yes. Do some homework, folks. Yeah. What an example of community, though. And I mean, fire, Catherine and I have talked about this, not only on the podcast, but just in our own conversations of, you know, fire can take you so many different places and the community is so, is so small, but so vast as far as across the country. But um, I mean, from the the standard that it took within fire to get from, you know, a crew boss to a strike team leader to then a division soup to go down into truly organized chaos without a flame front, but with, with true human tragedy that, that speaks to the capability that, you know, folks like you were asked to do. So that's. Well, it's the organizational thing, you know, this, when I, <clears throat> the, one of the first major fires that I had to address when I was uh, in a burn powder fire zone was the very beginning of the uh, ICS system. And so, you know, oh. I, I grew up with fire boss and line boss and sector boss 
What's a sector boss? Uh, or what's that equivalent? Sector boss would be, it's a subdivision of a division. It, oh, okay. It would be somewhat like a strike team leader. Got it. Except you're probably, you're in charge of multiple you know, engines, dozers. Got it. Whole, whole kind of thing. Got it. Uh, and that transition was occurring mm. um, in 1986. Um, and so my point was, is that it was that transition into an ICS system that's recognizable across the entire spread of agencies, private, state, federal, uh, across all you know different flavors of federal agencies, um, has been a really a good thing because yeah. everybody speaks the same language, everybody is called the same, mm -hmm. and you know what you're getting when you. You know, you get a, a guy from South Florida on your fire in Hell's Canyon and he's a division supervisor. He should have the, te the technical skill to be able to conduct operations in that situation. Yeah. And so that's yeah. refreshing to to see that standard have been upkept because there's I mean, we talked about it a little bit before, but you know, people of your generation are just built different. So it's, it's refreshing to have still a system that can, that can foster that and, and keep that accountability. Yeah. yeah. I think that's in the last 50 years of firefighting um, across this country. That has been, I would say that's the foremost organizational, um, organizational thing that's been done that really has created a, a fire, a, a management tool across the entire nation and internationally too. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. Especially with, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different opportunities that I know of people that have gone overseas to go help out with different fires, people going over to Australia and stuff. So it's, it's nice to have be a part of a system that, that can talk to other systems when it comes to tragedy, like, right. like that. Right. 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 So it's, it's kind of hard to be in another career high like that, but do you have any like, outdoor memories with your families that is like top of the charts too well that's just the thing is i was i wanted to wedge into this conversation a little bit that i had the great fortune to be married to a gal who <clears throat> understood what was going on and would be willing to raise the children in the in the summertime <laughs> Oh, and during football season. Oh, and during track season. This woman is a saint so, and yeah. is equally dialed. Yeah, she is equally dialed. Um, and she is, uh, that's, that's been, uh, I don't know that I could find another one like her. And I don't mean things like I try because uh, she's, she's a one of a kind. But yeah, we would do the typical things or try to wedge in the typical things. Uh, take the kids to San Francisco and let them look at Alcatraz and tell them they weren't good kids. <laughs> that's, you're, that's, going you're, you're going to Alcatraz. going to Alcatraz. So, you know, we did those kinds of things. Um, it's true that our our time uh, as a family was probably somewhat limited in the summertime. Um, they really didn't seem to get into the cutting of wood very, very much. I, I don't understand that. But. Oh, your biggest <laughs> hobby. Yeah. Can yeah. you just touch on your larch? How much yeah. wood, firewood, do you have at your house right now? How many cords? Do I really have to say? <laughs> legally. <laughs> no, it's, it's all legal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, legally, you I, must disclose. <laughs> I estimate there is something between 21 and 23 cords of wood at my 
house. You've and been busy the last two years because last time I talked to you, it was like 14. I, what I have you been? Like, where have you been grabbing well, it? Billiam. Um, <laughs> some, some nice. Some of this is, you know, this is, this ranks up there with, you know, a top secret rating. Yeah. You know, so you, uh, Sorry, we you can't disclose that, people. Don't divulge where that wood comes from. I 100% actually, feel like I know where this is yeah. coming from. Actually, actually, Some very recently opened yeah. thinning plots. No, no, no. To be, to, be entirely, <laughs> to be entirely transparent, I bought a log truck load of snags. Wow. And from what, Black Mountain? And it was, no, it, they were, came off uh, private sale, I think. No. So, yeah, it was a couple of years ago. And, wow. And so the logs are sitting there, and I've made a vow that I will not cut those logs until I'm 70 All right. because I'm still going to be going to the woods and with my, with Good my call. wood yeah. tags. Okay. And so, but I've got, and your saint of a wife who for some reason she, keeps helping you. She does. She wow. does. Yep. Yeah, she's real good at rolling rounds around. Yeah, yeah, I remember when I was working with you and I was like, you were like, I'm going to come bring Kathy out here. I was like, do you want help? <laughs> I got and, help. Yeah. I don't need help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want, for the people who don't, have never seen this infamous stack of wood, it is, I mean, Dial does not describe it enough. Everything, I mean, the, the, the bark comes off of the piece of wood. The, the bark is stacked. The wood is stacked in a way that it is it is perfectly it sized. Is geometrical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could take a math class out there, a seventh grade math class. Do not drive behind my house to see my wood pile bill. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. That's closed off. Not allowed. <laughs> um, but it's it's impressive. So this guy's dialed from. Gotta have a hobby, you know, and just we'll have a physical one. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good that's a good idea though. Like. Whatever you have that wood there for a later time, and you know Armageddon's coming. You gotta stay warm. So. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> You'll be <laughs> stack it up, stack it on pallets, and cover it. It lasts a long time. Yeah, Bill's prepared at all costs. Um, no favorite hunting. I I want to hear the Avery Avery hunting story in the Steens again. Wasn't, oh, wasn't that um, a pretty cool? Yeah, one? that was pretty cool. Yeah, she had a, a buck tag for the Steens, so we. Took a travel trailer and a horse trailer that doubled as the, well, sort of man cave ATV carrier. And yeah. we... Uh, this is her first animal, no? No. Okay. These, these kids have hunted from 12 years old. My grandson just killed a bull elk at 12 years old. Oh boy. This, this, <laughs> this season. So, uh, yeah. And he killed a really nice buck on Lookout Mountain as well. So he was two for two. So oh, this shit. season, so those kids are not strangers to weapons and and hunting and what the inside of an animal looks yeah, like and the carcass, yeah, and things like that. But uh, yeah, we uh, we hunted the steens, we uh, hunted some of the uh, the front side, and we weren't doing really well. So we went down to Fields, Oregon, and had hamburgers and uh, milkshakes. Yes. And filled up the gas. Got to restock. My and, favorite uh, part of hunting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Little town trip. That's and, my favorite part of Ukiah. Yeah. <laughs> let's go. Let's yeah. Let's go stop in at the the one store and get me some ice cream. Amy. <laughs> there you go. And then we went up the Alvord Desert side, and uh, she found a, a nice little buck to, to put down. And nice. So, yeah. That's and awesome. And we came home. So. That's a pretty cool memory yeah. to have a grandpa. Yeah, especially yeah. when. You're so involved with them now. Yeah. It's pretty well, cool. They they had a wonderful other grandpa 
that uh, did a lot of things with him. Uh, I actually taught with him at the middle school. He taught woodshop. Really great guy, Jake's dad, um, passed away. Sort of, um, it's sort of freakish. He had uh, he had a double lung transplant oh. up in Seattle and was doing quite well, and then very suddenly died in the hospital. Wow. Um, and it was pretty shocking for everybody. But he was a really good guy and did a lot of things with those kids. And we actually asked him from time to time, do you remember Grandpa Jeff? And they all remember Grandpa Jeff um, being, you know, who he was. Really, really special guy. That's amazing. Um, man, we've talked about a lot of highs. Uh, and, and Catherine and I have certainly shared our our lows and just sought advice from from you and people like you. But you know, at points in your career, whether you were, you know, battling being a parent or battling being a leader, um, you know, what, what are some moments of kind of some come to Jesus moments you had with yourself or as a coach, um, just kind of an advice thing where you looked at, you know, is this really worth it? Cause I know there's, there's a lot of those conversations when push comes to shove, especially in the outdoors. Um, you know, you're, you're typically tasked with something that's pretty physically challenging. Um, but have there been, you know, any moments where you kind of had to sit down with yourself and, and had to come to Jesus moment in the outdoors? Well, there was one, <clears throat> one fire we were on as a crew. Um, it was, uh, we drove to out of Jackpot, Nevada, and I got a call when we were in Jackpot that our daughter had meningitis. Mm. And the crew, uh, there was a crew boss trainee with me and she wasn't ready to be punched to full crew boss um, standard yet. And I actually got on it. We had a, the, the team there had a satellite phone and Kathy and I had a, a conversation about what was going on and what what value there was. And, and Kathy basically said, uh, you know, Katie's fine. She's going to be in, you know, she's going to be in her room with the lights off because you, know, you needed the darkness. Mm -hmm. And she says, there's really nothing else you can do uh, to be here. So, so I, you know, I was really grappled with that in terms of basically just demobbing the crew and yeah. going home. Um, and we'd only been out two or three days. And so I made kind of a decision. It tore me up a little bit. Okay. Uh, these 19 people are signed on to do this. I've signed on to do it. Um, my daughter's fine and in great hands with my wife. So I elected to continue the assignment. Um, so we finished that fire and we went to... Uh, Battle Mountain and hmm. got pulled into another fire and things very quickly went south on that fire. Um, the leadership on that fire was not. Um, and this was, of course, my opinion then and now was not managing the fire to number one, um, suppress uh, the fire as quickly as they could. And number two, uh, personnel safety was not uh, a priority. Mm. Um, our division boss made us stop uh, 
burning behind uh, this is wide open sagebrush country with grass and we're building a hand line which is as you know only two feet wide and we were securing that line with fire and he made a stop that tactic mm. and so we when he made a stop we went back and um, <laughs> as it turned out the line we had burned out on held and the line ahead that we had no chance burn out uh, was enveloped by the fire and ran all the way down to the road. Mm. Um, we, the following day, were given an assignment which was uh, totally inappropriate. Uh, essentially the same situation with no secured line and I refused. And this is, this is at the very beginning of the period where you could actively question leadership and say, yeah. what you're about to ask us to do is too dangerous and we did it hmm. and they promptly threw us off the fire and said you're not going we're going to send you directly home uh we're going to give you the worst possible uh, evaluation which they did hmm. and um, we left uh, we were on the phone as quickly as we could to our leadership on the forest and they wrangled us up another job in central oregon hmm. so we drove from battle mountain um to central oregon and we finished our, our tour there um, the safety officer on the forest flew down to this and took a couple of looks around and came back and he was not going to say that he agreed with me mm. but in the after action reviews and there were several that were conducted with leadership um, my decisions and i would say mine but it was a co-decision because i wanted this trainee also and she was very willing to step up and say this is wrong yeah so it was a together thing for, for she and i in terms of um, what the decisions we made um, some of those some of those people still live and work in baker and some of them have still said well they said uh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, the parents of these people had said, I'm glad you made the decisions you did yeah. with my son or daughter um, to get them out of that situation once it came to light. I wrote a full um, safety gram on the whole thing. Um, so it's probably still there in, in the safety grams. So. I bet it is. Yeah. When you're tasked to whatever, take people out and, and be responsible for them, it's I've, I've worked for a handful of folks that, that take that pretty serious and it's, it's good to come home with the same number of people you left with. That's yeah, the most think? important thing. <laughs> well, I mean, even, even if I didn't live in the community, but this is a community that I, that these, many of these members of the crew were former students of mine, Yeah. Um, you know, and they knew me in that other realm of teaching and coaching. So they, they were part of my life. Yeah. Even more than just firefighting. Totally. Um, and you, it was touched on in, uh, at your retirement party that Catherine and I spoke to a little bit at the beginning of this podcast, but you know, you respect and integrity were, were two words that were associated with you, uh, and just the way that you go about leadership and go about, uh, you know, taking care of people. So can you speak to, um, 
you know, how you get people to follow you and work hard for you when push comes to shove. Cause you've had, you've had so many different crews or teacher or like teaching moments and classroom moments where you're dealing with a dirt monkey or just a rambunctious <laughs> kid. And it's like, man, you just got to learn how to work hard, but that's not something that is innate for some people. Well, you mentioned reputation and that's actually secondary because it wasn't so hard either in teaching or coaching or in the fire world for me after X number of years, mm. because I had developed a reputation. And if there's anything I could speak to somebody uh, about leadership is be very careful of the reputation that you are going to develop for yourself because it's going to stick. And if you want to be known in a positive light by potential employees or peripheral people, or your peers, uh, you better work at developing a, a reputation that you can live with. Mm. Uh, prior to that, uh, the road to the reputation um, can be pretty rocky. You're going to be challenged at times uh, by people and events. Um, trust your training. Uh, I'd say trust your instincts, but that sounds like a boomer thing. So I'll stay away from that. Uh, you're safe. You're safe yeah, here. I'm safe. Um, but, uh, you know, do what you guys are doing right now. Find people who have already forged the way and pick their brains and ask them um, anything you need to ask them to, to put into your toolbox about being a better, a better leader uh, or a better follower. Because you know you need both. You need both. Uh, it's um, the air center manager, and I know folks have heard this before. The air center manager, when I showed up uh, at Legrand, right behind his desk, lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way. I love and, that. And That's good. It, it just you know it really that is it just basically says it all. You're either, and I think people need to be able to do both. I mean, there are times where you need to step up and lead. There are times where the same individual needs to go, hey, I can follow this. This is going to work for me. Uh, I can, you know, when you need me to do something else in, within my envelope, ask and I can, I'll go there. But uh, there's no in between. There's no, oh, well, I can maybe do that or maybe do this. Um, so as I said, back to the point, find people, who already have an established reputation, ask them. Um, they, if they're honest with you, they'll probably tell you, well, it was a rocky road and I made lots of mistakes. Hmm. Nobody got hurt and I got better. <laughs> and that's in essence what happens is, uh, you know, it's it's trial by error. You drive down a road you shouldn't and you drive your engine back out with fire all over it. So You, you know, knock in two Forest Service uh, windows. Yeah, you knock in... You windows <laughs> when you're locked out of your forest service vehicle have to put duct tape on some of those yeah. silt i don't know if those trucks still exist but yeah. i definitely uh had to put some duct tape on there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that's uh that's my take on reputation and and how to get one well what advice do you have for people like us well, people in our 20s we're still we're still trying to get that reputation. What advice do you have for the forestry career? Or? Well, it takes a while. I mean, you know, it, 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 a reputation takes a while. Um, I would say 
I would say just an estimate, but um, I didn't have the reputation that I allegedly had until I was probably 40 or 45. So um, I'd say keep at it. Don't be, don't be deterred in developing, you know, a wide range of skills, uh, practice those skills, fail at those skills, and then go after it again and, and do, you know, uh, I can tell you that there's a number of times in my tree falling experience, things, <laughs> things did not go well, but I knew enough to have that margin of safety built in to not, you know, damage myself or others. And so, but uh, anybody who's uh, where I am in life um, has had setbacks and um, near misses, um, but with a near miss, you you're hopefully have thought about the potential and what's going to happen. Um, and, and it's still maybe classified as a near miss, but it was one thing you cognitively thought could happen mm -hmm. in this situation. And when it's all over, you're going, mm, yep, kind of planned for that. Didn't want it, didn't want to see it, but I had planned for it. Yeah. And so that's something. Yeah. So thank you, Bill. That's awesome. Yeah. Don't be if you fail, don't be frail. Yeah. That's the bottom line. <laughs> one yeah. of the things that one of my old coworkers has told me, he's like, if you think you know what you're doing in the first two years, you're wrong. <laughs> I believe that. That's actually yeah. that's really true. And no. it, and I like and it kind of makes me feel better because it's like, yeah, I'm learning. I'm gonna learn. And then he's like, and then after that, you'll know what you're doing, but you're still gonna get stuff wrong. It's yeah. like right. Okay. Yeah. No, I feel better about this. Okay. So I know where I'm going. I yeah. don't know exactly where I'm it's going. It's not going to be quite right, but it's going to get close enough and then we're going to get a little closer. Yeah. You know, that's when you say that it's, it's kind of um, the, it would be easy to just, you know, well, I'm not getting any better. I'm still making mistakes. That's the expectation and pretty much, you know, it just depends on how fast you have to learn to survive. Mm -hmm. um, but that piece from where you are now, to allegedly a reputation that you claim I have, that's kind of a fun journey Yeah. in terms of, okay, fouled that up big time. Nobody got hurt. <laughs> you know, no, some equipment may have gotten broken, broken. <laughs> but that can be replaced as long as you're not negligence, you know, yeah. stuff happens. Um, and then you go from there and say, well, you know, last time we did this, this is what happened. We're not doing that again. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, you could pat yourself on the back when you have those moments of going, yep, seen this, and we're doing it this way this time. And that journey from where you, you ladies are now to where I'm walking away from is, is pretty neat. It's pretty neat to go through and, and make those mistakes and come out the other end going, yeah, it was a fun ride. Yeah. Awesome. And what a ride you've had. Um, thanks again for whatever, having, having this conversation with Sitting us. Sitting down with us. Yeah. Sure. And letting us, yeah. whatever, have this, have this cool opportunity and this cool channel and vessel to talk to people like you and get some advice and cool stories and laughs along the way. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to get Kathy on, see her side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, uh, maybe have the last word here. You two are I don't think you are <clears throat> unique. I hope you're not unique in the world of 20 somethings. 
Um, because, you know, the challenges of what's coming in this country in terms of forest management, fire management, and even the larger picture uh, is getting more complex. Uh, Kathy and I frequently talk about the complexity of things, and, and I, we get it's an aging thing for us. We get that. But uh, it, there are so many moving parts today for young people, and you guys manage it well, and you two particularly manage it well in terms of the technology, but you also manage the, the nuts and bolts of the job that I managed back in the day, the tools, the dealing, the interpersonal relationships that you develop and, and work on. You two are, you, I won't say you, I, I hope you're not unique in the world of young people. I hope you're a commonality. Um, I hope that, that what I see from the two of you is what's going on in the world of 20-somethings. In our friend group, it is. <laughs> Good. Thanks. Good. <clears throat> well, thanks, Bill, again. and Right on. I think that's the end. Logging out. See you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast and sticking with us while we figure out how to edit and record this pod. If you want to help us out, like, subscribe, give us a comment and a review. That would really help us out. And if you have a story that you want to share or have someone to suggest that we interview, uh, shoot us an email at decadesondirtroads at gmail.com. The contact info is also in our show notes.